And we have a couple of questions. In fact, we have a total of nine questions. Um, I felt like I need to answer them all, so I'll answer them fairly quickly. Well, maybe not, but I think they're good questions, so hopefully they're good answers. The first is this. Since Jesus is part of the Trinity, yeah, why does he say in Mark chapter 10, verse 18, that only God is truly good? Um, it's a good question, isn't it? This question came out of one of the two Bible readings that we've been working through. We've, we started reading the Gospel of Mark last year sometime, and we started reading the Psalms last year sometime, and we're just plodding along, along a bit each week. This is the bit last week. Um, yes, it is the case that, tru- that Jesus truly is part of the Trinity. That's, we, that's what we believe about who God is, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, three persons but one God. So that's what we believe is true. So why would Jesus say that only God is truly good, which is true. But the big thing here when you have a closer look at this bit of the Bible is that Jesus, it's not that Jesus isn't good because he is and not that Jesus isn't God because he is. The key thing is that he's trying to get the rich man he's speaking to to stop thinking about being good in terms of being accepted by God. See, this guy turns up, he reckons he's got everything sorted in life, and he says, oh, good teacher, good, 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 I'm good, everyone's good, all this kind of good, and because I'm good, I'm right with God. And basically, Jesus pulls the wool out, the rug out from under his feet and says, listen, if you think that you're going to get accepted by God by doing good stuff, you're going to fail because you don't really do enough good. It's only by trusting in Jesus that you can be saved. Question two, which Pharaoh is referred to in the Exodus story? Well, this is technical. This is a good question. I'll try and give you a short answer and a right answer. One of those will probably happen. Well, neither, maybe. Um, I don't, <laughs> um, one theory is that it's Ramses II, uh, although I read another good argument that it's Footmos the second. That's an interesting name if you're looking for one for a dog or a child or something. Now, this uh, this is what I read here. It said this Footmos the second began his reign very brilliantly, but after a while there is a perfect blank in the monumental records about him. But we read of a general revolt after his death among the nations whom his father had conquered. So that would kind of, in the history books, fit in with what we've got there of the Exodus. And there's also another source that said that the mummy of Thutmose II is the only corpse of a pharaoh during the 18th dynasty covered with cysts from an unknown malady, which could be the fact that he was in the water and he got pulled out. We're not really sure. Um, We do find that archaeologists dig up more stuff and find out more stuff, and in time we say, ah, they've actually found stuff that we've always known about in the Bible, and it helps us match things up there. Uh, The key is that whatever Pharaoh it was, he was defeated because he thought that he'd have a go at standing up against God, and uh, just a, a, a hint there, it doesn't work. Question three. How did the staffs turn into serpents if God wasn't working through them. So we looked at the Exodus last week, if you if you just come for the, here for the first time. Well, we read this in a few times, uh, verse 6 of chapter 8 of Exodus. So Aaron raised his hand over the waters of Egypt, and frogs came up and covered the whole land. But the magicians were able to do the same thing with their magic. They too caused frogs to come up on the land of Egypt. So what's the deal there? Well, the first thing to note is that even though there was three times that these miracle people copied Moses, the fourth time they weren't able to do it. It was just out of their league. Um, Now, so how did they do it in the first three times? Well, they may have been able to appear to do some of the miraculous things in the same way that stage magicians 
can do illusions. And you go and see a professional magician live and you go, whoa, how on earth did they do that? That's one possibility. But, which leads us to our next question, were the magic tricks by the Egyptians a work of the devil? Because that's also a possibility. Well, we certainly mustn't uh, ignore the possibility that Satan was empowering the Egyptian magicians in some sort of way. Uh, We've got to remember that even though Satan was defeated at the cross, he still had supernatural powers before then and even today as well. So it could well have been that situation. But you see, Pharaoh lost, Satan lost, the moral of the story is be on God's side. Question five, would the water that turned to blood also taste like blood? Um, well, the Bible said it turned into blood, and if it's blood, then it would look like blood and taste like blood. So I think that's a yes. Question six, should Christians continue to celebrate the Passover, or is it now obsolete? kind of answered this a few weeks ago, but I think... Christians certainly don't have to celebrate the Passover anymore. And that is because Jesus has fulfilled the Passover and he's given us something even better to celebrate. The night of the Passover, he said, listen, guys, we're celebrating the Passover, but from now on, something better is going to happen. And that's where he talked about his own body and blood, that he was the Passover lamb. And from now on, we celebrate the Lord's Supper instead. You can still have the Passover, if you'd like, as a follower of Jesus, but, uh, and we'll kind of point to the miracles that happened in the Old Testament. But I think we've really got to realise that the greatest miracle of all, of course, is that Jesus died and rose from the dead. Three to come. Question seven. Is there a difference between predestination and predeterminism? They're both big words. Uh, both of them relate to the fact that things in the future are already planned and determined. Uh, the word predestination is a word that we often use in theological kind of context, like the Bible and in church and among Christians and things like that, to talk about the fact that God chooses before the creation of the world some people who will be saved and others who won't. Predeterminism, I understand, is actually it's not a theological word, it can be used by atheists or philosophers or philosophical atheists or whatevers to basically say that the world is always, it was always going to turn out like that. It was sort of, it kind of like if you set all of the conditions up in the world in this way, then there's only way in which, only one way in which it will all be rolled out. Um, either way, God is the one who's behind everything. Two to come. How can predestination and free will both be true? Uh, this is the, not the first time I've answered this question by any stretch of the imagination, but it's probably the biggest question that people have. And that is, the, the Bible makes it clear that both are true. Some people will try and say, oh, lots of predestination, not much free will. Or lots of free will, not much predestination. But the Bible says complete predestination, complete free will, and that's the way it works. Now, in our minds, we're thinking, how can that possibly work? Well, it's very clear in the Bible that God is behind every decision. At the same time, God holds us accountable for every decision. And we know that to be a personal reality. You make a decision, you do something stupid, God's cross at you, you think, I know that, it was my choice. And at the same time, we can look back and say, thank you, God, for the way that you led me, that you made things happen. How can these two things be true at the same time? Well, even in modern world, they can see some examples of this, the classic by J.I. Packer in his book Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God is that light is both a flow of electrons and a wave. And so you shine a torch on 
a solar cell and the electrons flow out and bring energy and make electricity work. At the same time, you get a torch and you put it through a polarizing filter and you can see that it clearly acts as a wave. And apparently you can't have both at the same time, but clearly you can. And so um, it's kind of like that with predestination and God's and free will. You can't have both at the same time. Well, actually you can and you can't work out how they fit together, but God knows. And it just seems to make sense as well. Finally, question nine, how can we become more brave as a Christian? What a great question. Uh, there, are, there are a number of ways. G'day, guys. A number of ways uh, we can, we can uh, one of the ways we can do to, is to follow the examples of great Christian men and women in the Bible uh, and be inspired by their lives. You, you, you flick open the Bible and you see these people who remained faithful to God even though things got really, really hard. I think that's a great way to be inspired. You can also read great stories of Christians in the last 2,000 years. So Christian biographies can be, can be a great read. You read them and you say, wow, they were under extreme persecution. Things were really hard for them and they followed Jesus nonetheless. That's awesome. But ultimately, it will be the work of the Holy Spirit in your life that will enable you to be to be more brave, to be more bold as a Christian. And how does the Holy Spirit work? Well, the way that he works is by helping us know God through the Word of God, the Scripture. The Word of God and the Holy Spirit work together, and so we hear from God how it is that we can live and why it is that we should be full of courage, and with that in mind, we can then gain more bravery as a Christian. Really good questions. Thank you for them all.